Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, God's Ox. I begin with a thanks to those that have given a review of Communio Sanctorum on the iTunes store where many subscribe to the podcast. While iTunes is just one outlet for the podcast world, it turns out to be the major venue for rating and promoting podcasts. Now, I know that what we're doing here is ultra-amateur. CS is a labor of love, and well, we make no claim at being a scholarly review of history. I share these episodes in the hope that others can tag along and learn alongside me. I make no claim that this is an exhaustive treatment of the history. On the contrary, it's a cursory account that's meant to give just a brief overview of church history, a kind of verbal flyover with occasional moments when we'll linger over something interesting. I aim to give listeners a basic sense of when events occurred in relation to each other, who some of the main actors and actresses were and the part that they played. And as I've mentioned before, the episodes are intentionally short to make it easy to listen in brief snatches as people are working out or doing chores, maybe going for a walk, driving to work. What's a kick is to hear about all the ways that people have connected to Communio Sanctorum. Several have queued up a bunch of the episodes and then listened as they drive across the country or fly overseas. I was at a conference a while back talking quietly to some friends when a guy sitting in the row in front of me turned around and said, are you Lance? Do you have a podcast called Communio Sanctorum? <laughs> he recognized my voice. We had a great time getting to know each other better. Another time while on a tour of Israel, I met a guy in the dining room of one of the hotels who's a fan of the podcast and what a kick that was. Anyway, I appreciate it when people leave comments on the Facebook page or send an email. But best of all is to rate the podcast and write a quick review on iTunes and then tell your friends to give us a listen. Well, now back to the Scholastics. Though fueled by the work of Abelard and Anselm, Scholasticism reached its zenith when the Greek philosopher Aristotle was rediscovered by the scholars in Europe. The Crusades made contact with Muslim scholars who debated Aristotle's philosophy. Their thoughts returned with the Crusaders and were passed on to the theological schools located in the mendicant orders of the Dominicans and the Franciscans. These were the groups that the church had invested with the study of theology. During the mid-13th century, there was something of an Aristotelian revival in these schools. It's interesting that at the dawn of the 13th century, the reading of Aristotle was banned. After all, he was a pagan Greek. What could Christians learn from him? But, as any college knows, there's one way to make sure something gets read. Ban it. <laughs> Put a prohibition on it. So a couple of decades later, portions of Aristotle were allowed to be read. By the mid-century, he was required reading, and both he and his mentor Plato and his teacher Socrates were unofficially baptized and made over into pre-Christian saints. Now, it makes sense that Aristotle's philosophy would be resurrected when we remember that the goal of the scholastics was to apply reason to faith, to seek to understand with the rational mind what the spirit already believed. It was Aristotle who developed the rules of formal logic. During the Middle Ages in Europe, all learning took place under the watchful eye of the church. Theology reigned supreme among the sciences. Philosophers like Aristotle, the Muslim Averroes, uh, the Jewish Maimonides were studied alongside the Bible. Scholars were especially fascinated by Aristotle. He seemed to have explained the entire universe, not by using scripture, but simply by the powers of observation and reason. For some ultra-conservatives, this emphasis on reason threatened to undermine traditional belief. 
Christians had come to think that knowledge could come only through God's revelation, that only those to whom God chose to reveal truth could understand the universe. How could this be squared with the knowledge taught by these newly rediscovered philosophies? The pinnacle of scholastic theology arrived with Thomas Aquinas. His work forever shaped the direction of Catholicism. His influence was so profound that he was given the title Dr. Angelicus, the Angelic Doctor. His magnum opus was the Summa Theologica, in which he said that philosophical reasoning and faith were perfect complements. Reason, he said, leads to faith. He was born in Italy to Count Lundorf of Aquino and his wife Theodora. It became clear at a young age that Thomas would be a physically large child. At five, he was sent to school at the nearby monastery of Monte Cassino that Benedict had started 700 years before. At 14, Thomas went to the University of Naples, where his Dominican teachers so impressed him that Thomas decided he too would join the new study-oriented Dominican order. His family fiercely opposed this, hoping that he'd become a wealthy abbot or archbishop rather than take the mendicant's vow of poverty. Thomas's brothers kidnapped and confined him for over a year. His family tempted him with a prostitute and an offer to buy him the archbishopric of Naples. But Thomas would have none of it. He went to Paris, medieval Europe's headquarters of theological study. There it was that he came under the spell of the great scholar Albert the Great. When Thomas began his studies, no one would suspect the future that lay before him. He was colossally obese, much of his size due to suffering from edema, also known as dropsy. He had one huge eye that dwarfed the other and gave his face a distorted aspect that many people found disconcerting. Socially, he was anything but the dynamic, charismatic figure that some might assume. You know, something to make up for his awkward physical appearance. Aquinas was introspective and silent most of the time. When he did speak, what he said often had nothing to do with the conversation at hand. In college, his classmates called him the dumb ox, a title that seemed apropos for both appearance and behavior. What people didn't realize till later was the incredibly keen mind behind that unassuming exterior and the brilliant way that he was able to marshal his thoughts into persuasive language that others could understand. Remember that the goal of the scholastics was to provide a rational understanding to what Christians believe. Aquinas gave critical support to such doctrines as the attributes of God, the resurrection, and ex nihilo creation, which means creation out of nothing. While these are things that most Christians hold to, Aquinas also provided support for distinctly Roman beliefs, such as the veneration of Mary, purgatory, the role of human merit in salvation, and the seven sacraments by which God conveys grace through the Roman clergy. He also gave much support to transubstantiation, the idea that the communion elements are turned into the actual, literal, body and blood of Christ in the Mass. His theological and philosophical thoughts consumed him. According to one account, he was dining with King Louis IX of France, and while others were engaged in conversation, Thomas stared off into space, lost in thought, Forgetting, or not caring where he was, he slammed his fist on the table and shouted, Ah, there's an argument that will destroy the Manichaeans, which, of course, was a heretical group from ages before. At the beginning of his Summa Theologica, Thomas distinguished between philosophy and theology, between reason and revelation. Contrary to what some had claimed, true theology and philosophy don't contradict each other. They are each avenues of knowledge ordained by God. 
Following Aristotle's lead, Thomas proposed that reason is based on what our senses tell us. That is what we can see, feel, hear, smell, and touch. Revelation is based on more. While reason can lead us to belief in God, something that other theologians like Anselm had already said, only revelation can show us God as he really is. That is the God of the Bible. Philosophy makes clear the existence of God, but only theology based on revelation tells us what the God who exists is like. Thomas accepted Aristotle's principle that every effect has a cause, every cause a prior cause, and so on back to the first cause. He declared that creation traces back to a divine first cause, the creator. However, the full knowledge of God, the Trinity, for example, comes only through revelation. From this knowledge, we discover man's origin and destiny. Aquinas went on, man is a sinner in need of special grace from God. Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice, has secured the reconciliation of man and God. All who receive the benefits of Christ's work are justified. But the key, as in traditional Catholic teaching, lies in the way the benefits of Christ's work are applied. Christ won grace, but it's the church that imparts it, Aquinas said. He taught that Christians need the constant infusion of cooperating grace, whereby the Christian virtues are stimulated in the soul. Assisted by this cooperating grace, a Christian can do works that please God and gain special merit in God's sight. This grace, said Aquinas, comes to men only through the divinely appointed sacraments placed in the keeping of the church. That is the visible, organized Roman church led by the Pope. So convinced was Aquinas of the divine authority of the papacy, he insisted that submission to the Pope was necessary to be saved. Following an earlier scholastic, Peter of Lombard, Aquinas held to seven sacraments as a means by which the church imparts grace to people. He said that since sin remains a problem for the baptized believer, God provided penance, which was a sacrament that made for spiritual healing. With some caution, Thomas also accepted the practice of indulgences that had gained acceptance during the Crusades. Aquinas taught that, thanks to the work of Christ and the meritorious deeds of the saints, the church had a treasury of merit, a kind of great spiritual reservoir of excess goodness. And priests were able to draw from this reservoir to aid Christians who had insufficient merit of their own. We'll be taking a closer look at indulgences later when we get to the Reformation. Aquinas said that the wicked pass into hell while the faithful who've wisely used the means of grace pass immediately to heaven. But the bulk of Christians who'd followed Christ inadequately, well, they had to suffer purification in purgatory before ascending to the joys of heaven. Thankfully, these souls are not beyond the help of the church on earth, Aquinas reasoned. Prayers to the saints and special masses could relieve the pains of souls in purgatory. Now, there was nothing new in all of this. It had been said many times before. But Thomas set the traditional teachings of the church in a cosmic framework. Thomas's writings, and there were more than what was contained in the Summa, were attacked before he was even in his grave. In 1277, the Archbishop of Paris tried to have Thomas condemned, but the Roman clergy put a stop to it. Though Thomas was canonized in 1325, it took another 200 years before his teaching were hailed as preeminent and a major rebuttal to Protestantism. His writings played a prominent role in the Counter-Reformation's Council of Trent. In 1879, a papal bull endorsed Aquinas' theology, which today is known as Thomism, as an authentic expression of doctrine and said that it should be studied by all students of theology. Both Protestant and Catholic scholars study his work deeply. 
Thomas himself would probably not be pleased. Toward the end of his life, he had a vision that forced him to drop his pen. Though he'd experienced such visions for years, this one was different. His secretary begged him to pick up his pen and continue, but Aquinas replied, quote, I cannot. Such things have been revealed to me that what I have written seems but straw, unquote. His Summa Theologica, one of the most influential writings in church history, was left unfinished when he died three months later. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.